0: My guest today is the legendary Mark Hicks, known for his foraged and locally grown English menus. He is a well known chef in London and is the author of many cookbooks. He regularly appears on TV, including of the Kitchen and This Morning. You know, my podcast is called The Naughty Bites. What's your guiltiest pleasure?
1: My guiltiest pleasure? Uh, that depends on what I'm in the mood for, really. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little bar of chocolate in the car if I'm oh, traveling. Nice. Um, I'm a sort of Snickers fan, I suppose.
0: Oh well. <laughs> Do you still get their Snickers ice cream in the summer? Like your local... No, I don't.
2: I've I... not got into the ice cream. Not? I,
0: I, mean, I have the, tried it. but I'm not. Oh, no! I kind of I'm like the early. like. Oh, but chocolate bar it is. Mm. Yeah. So, as you know, through food we explore culture, and our consumption of food, how we um how we acquire it, who prepares it, who's at your table is also a form of communication through food.
1: How true is this for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, <clears throat> food does have a few huge part to play in communication I mean I suppose it starts from you know old fashioned family dinners mm. you know I don't think we tend to do it as much as we used to do in the UK but I think in a lot of countries it's a big thing you know the whole family sitting down for lunch
2: Definitely.
1: or dinner or a celebration uh, and I think that's translated into restaurants some of the time Um, But food, yeah, I think food says an awful lot, you know, not necessarily always good food, but, you know, Mm. literally eating food together and drinking together.
0: Definitely. It's curious you said that because, you know, living here in Spain, when I first moved here over a decade ago, I thought it was quite curious that every Sunday, no retail shops were open, no shopping centres, nothing. Because Sunday was family day in a restaurant. So people wake up late, go to a restaurant for two o'clock and they wait and leave for about six, seven. Could it be a whole thing together of family, your grandparents, kids, all eating yeah. and sitting? And I love that.
1: Yeah, it's a very different culture there, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Than what we you know. It's a shame because like in the UK, I remember as well from an Asian household sitting together on the floor and just everyone together, like just eating which now is not as common as it used to be, which is a shame, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know what we do about that.
0: Well, let's get on the campaign and get it back, because it'd be so nice.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, yeah. So we have seen a boom of foraging in the restaurant industry. Your restaurants often featured foraged and uh, local foods. How important was that for you?
1: Uh, Well, I I just think it's, it's, you know, I've been doing it for what are they, 20 odd years um and i, I think it, it is in danger of being a fad that people don't understand what they're using and just scattering it all over the menu uh i think mm. if you use the ingredients correctly um it works well because you know some things go with certain things and some don't really i mean great for vegetarian and mm. vegan dining uh and then I suppose down here, because I'm, you know, I've got the sea on my doorstep. I've got the estuaries and beaches. You know, just picking mm. wild seashore vegetables, for example, like sea purslane and sea aster and mm-hmm. sea beet, etc., uh, is just a part of what we do. I suppose.
2: Yeah.
1: Then it goes particularly think- well, obviously, with fish. Definitely. Absolutely.
0: Do you think down south it's a way of life as opposed to? Foraging becoming a
1: thing. I think. Well, I think you see more and more of it. You know, I, I've I've got friends of mine who are foragers, and it what well, you know, probably about you know, back in the Caprice and Ivy days, we started buying quite a lot of wild food from Miles Irving, who's a mm. uh, as a foraging company, and yeah, we used to spend quite a lot of money every week because it wasn't obviously all on your doorstep in London. Although saying that, you would be yeah. quite surprised, even in central London, how many, you know, wild things you can pick. Uh, so, so it's, yeah, so it's quite
2: interesting. And
1: it, it, yeah, it's educational. And of course, wild food has lots of, you know, essential nutrients, natural mm. things. You know, a lot of animals will feed on
2: yeah. wild food when they're sick. Uh, so, yeah, it is a natural thing to to do for me. So, you know,
0: you mentioned earlier it's becoming a bit of a fad and it's similar to the word of sustainability. People say my restaurant's sustainable, my ingredients are sustain, you know, everything's sustainable. But then, <clears throat> again, for me, it's become a buzzword without really understanding what it is. Why yeah. do you think foraging's become so popular in restaurants now?
1: Uh, I think it's just one of those things that's caught on, I think it's, <clears throat> it's you know, it's, it's, it's become apparent that it is natural, <clears throat> and it is genuinely wild, uh, and it's obviously good for you. Uh, so, you know, quite naturally, re- restaurants are beginning to use it more and more. Uh, I've, but I've seen the trend for, you know, many, many years mm. now of using wild foods.
0: You create seasonal dishes using your local ingredients. What's your favourite season and why?
1: Uh, I suppose. Well, no, I, I look forward to most of the seasons. To be honest, I mean there is a a bit of a lull, you know, in sort of early part of the year. But I think the whole point of cooking seasonally is, you know, you've got the game bird season, which starts in August until the end of uh, February. And then, of course, you've got, you go into springtime and you have all the natural sort of spring vegetables and herbs Mm. and salads and gulls, eggs and asparagus and all that kind of thing. And then obviously you go into the summer where you've got, you know, lots of nice berries and winter, you know, autumn, which you know is a typical sort of mushroom season, so I, yeah i I look forward to all the seasons, really. Unfortunately, there's still lots of restaurants out there and shops that are serving mm. things that are out of season, you know this this current thing at the moment about shortage of vegetables, you know yeah. why, why, why why do people want to eat tomatoes and cucumbers this time of year? I, I know right? season. The the thing is that are in season, but <laughs> well, this is but the whole thing. It puts too much demand on you know growers abroad growing yeah, uh, uh, you know, the rest of the world, if you like.
0: It's curious. Um, I was reading um, on the New York Times that there's a vegetable shortage, and unfortunately, a lot of your vegetables from the supermarkets come from Spain, and because we've had I live close to Almeria um, – and because because we've had crazy like radical not radical, but like, you know, the weather's been so extreme and we've had heat, freezing cold weather, heat. And it's just been like that, like a roller coaster. And because of that, there's been a tomato shortage, a cucumber, like everything that's you can't get in the UK,
2: yeah. it's
0: affected with our weather here in Spain. And hopefully with the warmer climate that's coming, it shouldn't be as bad. But climate change is having an effect, especially where I live in terms of drought and yeah. extreme winters, yeah. which is
1: curious, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, people have, a lot of people shop because they think they need to have tomatoes and cucumbers in their fridge. They don't need to have yeah. tomatoes and cucumbers in the fridge.
0: It, no, oh. it's it's true. It's, it's, it's really curious because I order my vegetables from an organic greengrocer, so I never know what I'm going to get. Because I yeah. only get what's in season. So I'll have soup boxes because I love making soups. And each month it's something different. And yeah. it, I love it. Like it's it's really good. So I won't actually get tomatoes in some of my boxes because it's not in season. Which is yeah, yeah. You know, curious. Um so you are known for creating the most wonderful traditional English menus. Why did you focus on that?
1: I think it was probably what I started writing about food a bit more, you know, I wrote for the independent for 14 years.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, back ten yeah, 20, 20 odd years ago. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and I think when you're writing weekly in a national newspaper, um and I was, you know, doing books at the same time, must be books, uh, doing the weekly column was really um for me it was an easy way out, just to put any ingredient in at any time of the year,
2: mm.
1: which obviously, you know, it's available. So for me, it made made things much more interesting doing seasonal recipes
2: mm.
1: and, you know, seasonal meaning from the UK. Uh, so that was probably my drive and incentive back then for, you know, using British seasonal ingredients.
2: So... You know, using
0: British seasonal ingredients, was was that a conscious decision and making environmentally friendly choices as a chef because you're going with the... Yeah,
1: that, well, that as well, and also getting British seasonal ingredients back on people's radar, mm. really, you know, what they should be shopping for. Um, it's, what's good? Because, you know, a lot of people don't know what's in season necessarily. Mm. Uh, you know, if you ask someone what's the season for leeks or, you know, cucumbers, tomatoes, they wouldn't know,
2: yeah. you know,
1: and especially children.
2: It's,
1: you know, it's true it's to ask, say that. a school kid. I, I think, you know, people need to be more aware of what ingredients yeah. are in season when, mm. and a lot of it does go back to schools. I think, you know, people don't, we don't teach mm. children about food and ingredients. You know, when I when I was at school, we did a subject called uh rural science, which okay. involved gardening, planting, harvesting, rearing chickens, oh, wow. killing chickens, plucking chickens. Oh, that's curious. And I mean, you don't see that now, but I think I think food is really crucial um in education.
0: Definitely, it's curious. I I studied food. Food Science, Food Marketing at Sheffield Hallam. And one of our courses was food and how to fillet and all of that stuff. But I remember there was a girl in our course and we had to fillet a fish. But a lot of my friends took on the course, but they didn't want to see eyes on their fish. So I was thinking, why are you studying food if you don't want to understand where it's come from and how to kill it? How to fillet it? And it was a whole thing of I don't want to touch it. Um, and I thought that was really curious because still a lot of people that studied food weren't that conscious of where the food comes from and, you know, how to kill a chicken or how to like carcass a chicken or things like that, which I thought was interesting. I think because I grew up with it, but I learned it from a young age that when, for me, it was more therapeutic, which is, yeah. 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 So people think it's disgusting, but I find it really therapeutic when I'm like plucking a chicken or something. <laughs> I could be weird. <laughs> but, um, so um, when you think of British food, what do you think of? What do you think is the definition of British food?
1: Um, well, I think the definition of British food now to what it mm-hmm. was maybe 25 years ago is very different.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: always remember doing a conference in Baltimore with the Lake uh, Charles Campion, food writer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This was probably twenty odd years ago, <clears throat> and uh, we were talking. We were talking about food, English food, food trends, and you know, a lot of the Americans there really did still think that we were all about fish and chips and roast beef. Oh, okay. you know, so yeah. we had to go into sort of detail uh, about what traditional British. Dishes, you know, actually were, you know, because mm-hmm. there's hundreds of thousands of things, you know, even things like Trinity burnt cream is very close to a, a French um creme caramel, but uh, not creme, uh, sorry, start again. <laughs> the Trinity <laughs> burnt cream is um, <clears throat> very close to the French creme brulee, you know, virtually okay. the same dish. And You know, things like the lemon meringue pie uh, is very close uh, to a a dish that was sort of classic, um, a classic thing up north called Chester pie, which is virtually the same with the meringue on top. Um, So a a lot of these dishes were maybe brought to England or maybe came from England. You know, hashish parmentier Mm. is basically a shepherd's pie. You know, Mm. it's a French dish. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's very difficult to define. You know, we have classics, Lancashire hot pot and all of things. Always. You know, steak and oyster pie, steak and kidney pie. Oh, uh, and, you yeah. know, we have, we have, I mean, I've, I've, as you know, I've written lots of books, books on English food. Um, so I'm sort of well um, documented and researched on a lot of those traditional
2: dishes. English dishes. So what would you
0: think meets a certain criteria to be considered authentic when you're doing your research in terms of what is typical of British food or just food in general?
1: Well, I I always look at it, I compare it a bit to Spanish food and Italian food because a lot of good British food, not necessarily the traditional dishes that people recognise British food for, Is based on ingredients, you know, simple ingredients, um, as it is in Spain and in Italy and a lot of European countries. Uh, So I think the the British culture and British, you know, British cuisine, you know, relies on, you know, seasonal ingredients, Mm. I think.
2: Do you think,
0: so for example, Italy and Spain, Italy more so, um, are much better at advertising their regional food because Italian food is regional, Spanish food is regional. Do you think the UK should be doing that as well in terms of seasonality is our thing? Do you think, you know, a lot of people don't know, like you said, in America people still think it's fish and chips. Unfortunately, in Spain they still think that as well. Um, But do you think the UK is behind in creating more awareness about what English food is or what British food is?
1: Uh, I think we're a lot more aware about provenance now. So, you know, Mm. in the West Country, for example, you know, obviously we've got the sea, we've got great dairy produce. uh, So it's very easy to compile, you know, a West Country menu, for example, using West Country ingredients. You know, the dishes that we create with those aren't necessarily traditional British yeah. dishes, but they're certainly British and they're certainly seasonal.
2: Definitely, yeah. Then what
0: what do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have when, you know, about the UK and when travelling in the country in terms of food? Well, I think, I
1: think historically, you know, you couldn't get consistent good food in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking thirty years ago, you know it was very okay. hit and miss, and a lot of the places that were <coughs> serving bad food mis- yeah. misrepresented the places that were serving good food yeah and, you know when i was when I was in London, you know all the menus would have been in French, uh so it's oh. very classic sort of French cooking back then
2: yeah
1: uh, now it's very very different, and I think most of you know, most people are serving, you know, British, not necessarily British classic ingredients, but twists on British yeah. classic ingredients. Okay. And I think people are recognizing more and more. And I think a lot of those people that, like you just said, you know, people in Spain still think it's fish and chips.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think they're people that maybe don't travel.
0: Yeah. I think what I've noticed living here is that a lot of people travel within Spain. But the, yeah. they don't really travel outside of Spain because exactly, it's the food is so regional, and also our country is so big. Yeah. Like Spain, it generally is massive. To just to travel from the south to the north is about ten hours without even one stop. Yeah. Um, and the food is drastically different. So you know, in the south, a lot of our food is fried because we have such extreme summers. But then, yeah. if you go to the north, it's more like beef and shoes and lentils because it's the climate's more like the UK. I mean, it's two different yeah, exactly. together. And
1: I think, you know, similar to even people that do travel to Spain still think that Spanish food is all about paella. Oh, and unfortunately, but unfortunately, a lot of Spanish seaside resorts <laughs> they cook, serve it. cook for the English palate. They do. So they, they're Absolutely. serving bloody fish and chips. And, the, you know, the most regional thing on there is a badly served paella. And that's, I think, what the Spanish are serving to the British, kind of thing.
0: And I think it's a shame because um, I've had this conversation many times. If you want a very good paella, you would go to Valencia yeah. or the community of Valencia. So, Alicante would have it as well. Um, and the best one I've ever had was cooked with rabbit and um, snail yeah.
1: stock. I yeah, so. I, I've, I've had that up in the hills in the Catalan region, rabbit and snail. Violet. Oh, it's so
0: good. And But I think that's the thing the Spanish are serving rubbish versions of Spanish food to the Brits. And so, assumingly, they'll yeah. think Patatas Bravas and Bahia and Sangria. Yeah. And no one drinks Sangria.
2: No, exactly. Which is so, a pain.
1: They don't do themselves any favours. I mean, at least in England, we don't try and serve, you know, um fake food to, let's say, the
2: Spanish, for example. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: that's true.
0: So, I just want to ask a few more questions but about yourself. Um What is the worst job you've
2: ever done the worst job I've ever done. Um, I've only really had a few jobs
1: okay. in my in my lifetime in my career. I suppose when I was a kid, um, nothing to do with food. You know, I worked in a plumbing shop when I was about eleven years old, twelve years old. You, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't be allowed to work at that age now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that was just stacking pipes drain pipes oh, up and stock you know gutters and stocking up shelves and things it wasn't the worst job because I, I was earning money when i was that young wow uh, yeah i don't think i've really had any i've tended to enjoy most of <clears throat> the jobs i've done okay. um probably my first job in london uh I, it's the only job i could get was straight from college um in the staff canteen at the hilton Mm-hmm. And all my workmates were working at the Dorchester and the Graveler House up the road in Park Lane, So I did that for six months. And yeah, it wasn't the best job. There wasn't an awful lot of cooking skills involved, but i it was all about me getting my foot in the door in London. Yeah. Uh, so, so that yeah, possibly that's the worst yeah, that might be classed as the worst job the worst it wasn't job. it wasn't disaster. It was just not <laughs> the best job not
0: so. <laughs> um. What is your favourite smell? Smell? Yeah, smell. I think to be a chef, you've got to have a fantastic sense of smell. What um, would you say your favourite smell is?
1: Uh I do like sitting in a restaurant in Italy with uh, <sighs> fresh truffles being shaved.
2: Oh, fact, nice. Oh, uh,
1: that's a sort of memorable seasonal smell. Uh, mm-hmm. I do quite like... I, I quite like being in um, fishing because I was brought up in a fishing village in Dorset. I quite like the smell of um, sort of wet rope and nets on the harbour side, mm-hmm. you know, off the fishing boats, especially especially the old, the old rope, mm-hmm. the proper rope, which I sort of remember mm-hmm. from when I was a kid. Oh,
2: nice! No. You know, it's
1: okay, mate. It's synthetic now. It's made <laughs> of. Um, nylon. Yeah, it's
2: changed.
0: Ah. Oh. Well, that's amazing. And then taste, in every sense of the word, is always changing. How has yours evolved through the years?
1: Yeah, mine's naturally involved. Uh, obviously, from a young age, what I tasted was quite limited.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, from and an, uh, obviously, you know, to modern day, uh, luckily I've still got my taste buds and, which is important in my business yeah the uh yeah I, I think your your tastes evolve naturally through eating out eating different types of cuisine travelling
2: mm-hmm.
1: Uh so it's yeah i think it's a i think it is a natural thing and everyone's tastes aren't the same but i, I mean i i've got a, i've got a very um what's the word, you know, attraction to sort of Asian cuisine. Mm. I sort of lived in Dorset for three years and really missed good quality Asian cuisine. But now I'm working back in London during the week.
2: Okay.
1: Asian food is my go-to food.
0: Snap. I love it.
1: So, <laughs> any yeah, time of yeah, Especially in the Soho area, there's so much choice. <clears throat> um, and it's all completely changed from when I moved out of London. Oh, Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of in the thick of it there.
0: So you've written many cookbooks. As many cookbooks do, some of them include some sort of memoristic as- aspects. What was that like for you to take on projects like this when creating your books?
2: Uh, what do you mean? What, the different subjects of the books? Or? Yeah, because some of them include some sort of history to it
1: well, and memories. Yeah, well, I, 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 I do... If I'm writing a food book, cookbook, recipe book, whatever you want to call it, I don't I don't like to just do a book full of recipes. I like mm-hmm. to give a little bit of history of the, you know, the ingredients and mm-hmm. in the dish itself, maybe where either I've eaten it or where it came from originally, which region.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh because also when I when I do menus, it's it's interesting, you know. Great Show Club, for example, we just had a couple of well, we got a dish on the menu called London Particular, which is a very old mm. uh, fashioned dish that was named because of the um, the smog in London when they used to call it pea soup.
2: <clears throat>
1: so this is a um, green dried split pea and ham hot soup. In sort of Charles Dickens times, uh, and I, I, I like the fact that you, you, you put that on the menu, London in particular, and the customer's going to ask what it is, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: hopefully most of the time my my staff do get it right. It's <laughs> the description, but it's but then the customers also being educated at the same time.
0: I like that because I like this is what I realised when I was doing my research about you. You have a lot of British English food, but everything has a story, yeah. you know, you've got historical aspects to your food. So hopefully your waiters or your staff are selling it really well, like making it memoristic. Um, you know, so you've created two cookbooks for children and teen. you know, cook, you know food for people yeah. who are younger. How important is that for you to educate children in terms of food? Yeah, I mean, I,
1: <clears throat> Eat Up was my first cookbook because um, mm. I just had um, my twin girls, Ellie and Lydia. So I thought it. there's not any real good food books mm. out there for children. Not for children to cook, but for children to eat and parents to cook.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so that was quite an important book, which a lot of people do have that um, book on their shelves.
2: Yeah.
1: And now um, I think it's important going back to schools, certainly. Yeah. To, to uh, teach Students about food. I mean, when I was at school, I did domestic science in the fifth year. Mm-hmm. We had a choice of metalwork or domestic science. It was the first mm-hmm. time boys could do it. Okay. Uh, so three of us decided to do it because we thought we'd be in a classroom full of girls.
2: <clears throat>
1: and when we turned up, all, the, all of the girls decided to do metalwork.
2: <laughs> oh God! So a lot of boys. Yeah, so there was just but three
1: I... boys and the teacher. <laughs>
0: So, no, it's curious because um, that's continued because I, I, I studied food nutrition or food technology. They changed um, yeah, from yeah. GCSE, so it was a subject that a lot of more people are doing now. And I think it's quite good that they are learning how to make bread or learn the science behind yeah, making I think,
1: mayonnaise. I think food education should, should be compulsory in schools.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Uh, you know, wh- why wouldn't you teach kids about food?
0: Yeah, because I think a lot of people still don't know the basics of food, and I think it's good that they do, you know. Um, And growing up, you spent a lot of time with your grandfather. Is there a particular food memory you associate with him?
2: It was all
1: very sort of natural stuff. He was a gardener.
2: Mm.
1: You know, I vividly remember his tomatoes. He, He had two greenhouses full of tomatoes. Just one variety, nothing fancy. And, uh, yeah, grew all his own vegetables. You know, my grand was a good sort of home cook, nothing special. You know, you had yeah. braised, stuffed lamb's hearts one night. You know, the next oh, wow. night you'd have pork belly, but not pork belly that, how we know it now, roast pork belly. It was cooked for hours in the oven till it's was falling apart. Uh, wow. So those sort of dishes, it wasn't... Um, <coughs> It wasn't inspiring cooking, if you like. It was just Mm. simple, thrifty cooking that was always very economical, you know.
2: Okay.
0: And, you know, you've moved back to Dorset, a place where you grew up. Do you miss aspects of being in London? I know you said you're working there within a week, but are there other things that you miss? Yeah,
1: so I I promised myself not to go back to London. And now I find myself, you know, working in London (laughs) during the week. Uh, and actually now I'm back in London, I suddenly realise why I was in London in the first place. Because okay. my new uh, role at the Show Club, you know, I'm sort of surrounded by all my old creative friends, mm. um, which is, for me, was one of the sort of big drives about being in mm. London, really that sort of creative hub.
0: And is there anything else that you miss about London?
1: Yeah, all sorts, eating out, oh. socialising, yeah. There's, all I mean, the there's, fun stuff, all yeah, the fun yeah, stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: I mean, I, I love it down in Dorset, um, but you do get into a little bit of a rut. <laughs> fishing, sea, in fishing season, it's fine because of the seas. Um,
2: Amazing.
1: Yeah, so, as you can see, I overlook the sea.
0: Oh, God, I'm so jealous. That's stunning. And you've got a beautiful
1: balcony. Oh. Yeah. So I I have to wake up to that every morning. (laughs) Oh,
0: that's so peaceful. But anyway, my last question for you, what has been your memorable
2: part of your journey so far? Well, I'm not going to forget the time
1: just before lockdown that my business partners announced that they were putting the business into administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's taught
2: me an awful lot. Uh, It was, you know, it was bad, probably bad and good, I'd say. Okay. You know, I
1: had probably one or two too many restaurants at the time in London. Okay. And, yeah, so what happened was bad, but actually I got out the other end, still struggling even, you know, three years on Mm. uh, with everything sort of financially and stuff. So you know that's always the, the thing when you're used to you know living and working in a certain environment, and then suddenly you know everything's taken. Hence why I was selling fish from a van, to the, you know, to the locals. Uh,
0: okay. Do you think
1: to that part of it- my life? You know, and obviously it's much later in life, uh, not early on. Uh, that's the piece that people will always remind me about, I think. Mm. And I will always remember.
2: But
0: do you think, you know, you said you come up with the other side. Do you think it's given you a bit more freedom as to where to work and what you want to do now with your life?
1: Um, well, a certain element, yes. But at the end of the day, you've still got to, Earn money. I've I've got my Mm. own restaurant, obviously, still in Dorset. Yeah, buy that back. Uh, I'm still writing for the Telegraph, which is great. Uh, But you know, even though I'm now 60, you know, you still need to make a living, especially when you lost, you know, everything.
2: Definitely. Uh,
1: So I'm probably working. I'm working as much or as hard now, or it's not harder, than I would have been. 30 years, years ago yeah. <laughs>
0: which is fine it's, it's all good but then what was what would be the last if there was a piece of advice you would give to someone starting out in the industry and, go, and going through what you've done what would you tell them
1: uh, just be careful in every step I mean now is the most difficult time to open a restaurant mm-hmm. you know everyone asks now about opening a restaurant I always tell them not to do it uh, because you've got all you know you've got rising costs of you know energy everything you can imagine yeah. is against you uh, yeah. in London you have particularly greedy landlords uh, you know there's inflation there's interest rates was everything Mort- mortgages rates so, so you know it's, it's really not a great time to be doing anything i, I would just hang on to what you've got and enjoy it. don't do anything quite yet
0: <laughs> but mark it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for today
1: pleasure thank, thank- you nice to meet you